Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Well, I am thrilled today to welcome to Short Black, Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins. G'day, Kate. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. You have been a very busy woman lately, just releasing your report, Respect at Work. Give me the headline bullet points about where we're at and where we've come, what we need to do to change things. I've spent the last 18 months talking to people right around Australia and and around the globe and where we are at is not as far as we'd hoped to be on sexual harassment. I think we've had a lot of effort and focus on improving the workplace for women and men and particularly eliminating sexual harassment, lots of training programs, lots of policies, lots of people saying we shouldn't have it. But our stats tell us that one in three Australian workers in the last five years have experienced sexual harassment. So those are the 2018 stats. So Australia, being what it is, doesn't like to admire a problem for too long. So I was fortunate to be able to lead this inquiry to consider what would be solutions to change those stats because we know that both has impacts on individuals, but it's also meaning we don't have productive workplaces and families are affected. So we want to change that. In the current environment, we think a lot of it just exploded around Me Too. And yet what you found is the situation has worsened prior to Me Too. It used to be sort of one in five and now it's one in three. So the problem isn't improving That's absolutely right. And I think that will probably be the most surprising thing for people who've read the report. There is this assumption that things just inevitably get better over time. We always talk about things improving. Uh, But there's been a few things that we probably don't remember or think about that have changed over time. So when the laws came in originally in Australia in the 80s, we were ahead of the game. We, We set up laws saying we'll prohibit sexual harassment at work. And just to remind you, sexual harassment is unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature where it's reasonable the person would be offended, humiliated or intimidated. So it's not rape, but that can be covered, sexual assault. It's saying when people come to work, they shouldn't have to deal with unwelcome offensive sexual conduct. At that time, though, people tended to have full-time jobs. They tended to stay in the one place for a long time. For example, for 30 years in one place. <laughs> Don't look at um, me. <laughs> and a small number would still do. Uh, but the majority of people now, work is a very different thing. It's done in a different way by different people in a different manner. So when we did the inquiry, we realised that actually now people tend to be in short-term, temporary, they are self-employed, they might have a portfolio, they might be an Uber driver part of the time, they might work casually somewhere. So they do a whole lot of different types of work. And it's really clear that if you're not in secure, permanent, ongoing employment, you're less likely to raise concerns about things happening at work. So that 
came up as a really strong theme, particularly amongst young people, and young people are at the highest risk. Is that because they think they don't have the same rights as a full-time employee? Yeah, we found young people didn't even know their rights, actually. So I think that also goes to the history of unionism and activism. And now, you know, young the young people I spoke to, they'd been working casually, they'd never done an induction, they didn't really join the union. So there isn't the same information about their workplace rights. So I think they don't know. I mean, I had uh, one conversation with a group of about 22-year-olds and one of the young guys said, not only did I not know that was unlawful, he said in his bar job he'd been told by his boss that he should be flirting with the women to try and get them to buy more drinks. And so he's sort of like... I'm uncomfortable about this. He was, yeah, he was saying, I'm treated like this. And then he was being asked to potentially sexually harass someone else. Now, when I spoke to them, this group of eight all said, wow, we didn't know that. So I think there's a lack of knowledge. And then in the media and in the narrative, there's very much a view that we don't like sexual harassment, but you should put up with most of it. So if I go back to that definition of sexual harassment, it's really unwelcome sexual offensive conduct at work. And the point is you should be able to come to work free of that. But the narrative somehow has come to be... Sexual harassment is akin to the Harvey Weinstein stories, which are really stories of false imprisonment and rape. And they're, so, they're the extreme. So in Australia, we really there's a real tension in the conversation when I talk to people over it. Said we shouldn't have sexual harassment, but then the most frequent kind is sexual comments, sexual jokes, inappropriate touching, kissing, kind of everyday stuff. So that instead say, of it being a red flag, it might just be a white flag. That's that's right. And lots of the conversations were we don't want to complain. Like Australians, as a, as a broad comment, no one wants to complain. They don't want to complain because it's kind of countercultural. But they also don't want to complain because they don't want to lose their job. They want to get on with people. You know, it's much easier at work if you haven't got a complaint on the go. But what we heard consistently from men and women who'd experienced sexual harassment is they would love it if they could have a way to act on the white flag, that there'd be something really at low level, that they like this bloke, they just wish he'd stop making these comments. And it's just sort of we've got at a moment where it seems like it's you can't even say, hey, that's, and you know, that was a bit offensive, could you not say that again? So we've kind of got this world where there's temporary work, young people perhaps don't know, there's a lot of sexual conduct still that's in the media. There's a lot of tension and yet we're still at this tipping point. And people aren't just allowed to actually talk to each other about this topic. So a lot of, and then there's mandatory training and you sort of, there's a there's kind of this view that I can bring people in the room, wag my finger at them and they will then go out and not harass like, and we know that's not working. This is a multifaceted problem because you're looking at generational change, cultural change and industry employment adjustment. What are your primary solutions right now and what's the take-up and reaction from business, both small and large? Yes, so the recommendations we've made recognise the complexity of the problem but also that Australia has a really good framework already in place. So I think we have the spirit, the intent to change this And I think we have sort of the pieces of the puzzle there. So if we could kind of just tighten them up a bit. So the recommendations we've made, I describe fall into sort of three categories. I'll go to the workplace last, actually. So the first category is recommendations about what we can do as a broader community to educate everyone. 
What are we doing in schools and at universities to make sure those young people do understand about workplace rights? And also, how do we leverage off the current really positive action on gender equality and particularly around family violence? So the government is doing some really great initiatives that are really encouraging us to understand the gendered, the negative gendered aspects of what boys and girls and men and women should do and how we can change those so that that sexism doesn't continue. So there's recommendations about the media, how it portrays it about schools and education. The second area is really to government and about our laws. And we recognise that there are sexual harassment laws, but there's also safety laws and workplace laws. And in those working together, if they are more organised, more consistent, more streamlined, they will be less confusing, not because I think people will start using them and suing everyone, but because at the moment, if something happens, people are so confused about what the where to go, who to call, how to get help. Um, so those recommendations are not just about improving them, but about making them work better together. Then in terms of workplaces, the response has been really very much, this isn't productive, we don't want this to happen. Small business absolutely, though, said there's just so much on our plate, don't you know, make us do another yet another thing. Don't load us up with even more. That's right. So, and that was really a loud and clear message. But big business who are doing a whole lot of um, initiatives aren't showing any better practice anyway. So it's interesting to see that all the training and all the policies and all the complaints procedures actually aren't really turning into fantastic See, that, workplaces. That just makes me despair. So the good news is, Hello. though, yeah, <laughs> don't despair. When I went around, I spoke to people and said, OK, if you can think of a workplace where things were good. There were lots of stories, but there was one, again, that same group of young people. They were telling me these stories and I was thinking, oh, dear. But then at some point I said, OK, have you had a good experience? And they said, yes. And I said, what were the hallmarks of that? And one of the young women just said, I was just treated with respect. And that conversation, that's why the report's called Respect at Work, because it seems to be a solution for a lot of our problems, a lot of the bullying issues, a lot of the mental health issues, just productivity, that what we're not looking for is um, something quite radical. We're just saying when you're in a workplace... The, the sort of hallmarks in small business is if you've got respect, trust and integrity. You know, we give some examples of cultures and lessons. So the cricket ball tampering kind of issue, there's a big ethics report written about the culture there. Uh, the Royal Commission into banks was all about what is driving these behaviours and what do you need to do differently and those cultures really were where they were too busy trying to make money, you know, win at all costs, and they'd really lost that just human respect for each other. So a lot of the recommendations really are the same recommendations that make workplaces more productive and more pleasant, and they are out there. And the most important part of them working is where your direct line manager just cares so there was one um, woman that I spoke to and we did a consultation with some people with disability and she had a mild intellectual disability. She worked at um, a retail store and she said, look, I know I work for a big company. I know they have all the policies in the world. I know they do all this online training. She said, 
never done any of it. It's too complicated. So I just haven't been able to do it. But I know Gavin in the store has said, if I'm ever uncomfortable, I'm to talk to him. And she said, and I sort of, I know what that is. And so she had an incident where one of the customers treated Erin away and she was very uncomfortable and she knew that she could speak to Gavin. A co-worker talked to her and she was not sure whether she was confident. And so that co-worker said, I'll come with you and we'll talk to him. Now, if I listen to that, she hasn't read a policy, she hasn't attended the training and she didn't know what the complaint procedure said. But she said, and he came in and he said, that shouldn't have happened. And so it's about that direct line manager. So we're getting a bit complicated on what's the policy say and what's step three. And But when a report like this comes out, the headlines inevitably focus on the stats. The stats are worse, the alarm bells ring, the hysteria goes off and the stereotypical bristle occurs sometimes gender specific or not. So you'll have some men's groups that will say, oh, here we go again, it's all our fault. And women's groups saying we can't speak up. It's going to be career defining, career limiting. I have no choice. I have no voice. But what you're really saying is rather than focus on the negatives, it's a subtle gear change where you focus on the solution and a language paradigm switch that really moves it to the positive and simplifies the whole equation. That's absolutely right. So one of the things that inevitably ends in the media is about complaints. And I know that we will get into and we've had a steady stream of who did what and who was the villains and what's the proof. In doing this work, I was very focused that if we keep focusing on just the one or two high-profile negative examples, whether they be true or not, it still paints a picture that this is only something that evil people do and it's not the everyday experience. But we know it is the everyday experience. So the focus of my work was recognising we need to respond better to complaints but saying we need to shift everyone to thinking about how can we stop it happening in the first place. So what I found during the course of the inquiries, our laws and our media probably drive employers to spend more time focusing on concealing sexual harassment than preventing it. And there's been lots of conversations about non-disclosure agreements and particularly in the US. They are definitely present here as well. And the defamation laws. And the defamation laws. So that's all about we need to tell these stories to get justice. My first view is... If we are relying on the media to deliver justice, then our justice system isn't doing its job. But aside from that, if all of the media reporting starts to really get us down to thinking there's one bad bloke in one industry, then what are the large corporates doing? The large corporates have a line on their risk register that says a bad case getting into the media is a problem. So you try and stop it getting into the media. Are you trying to stop it happening I think that's where I'm trying to get the shift is as employers, you're trying to stop the sexual harassment happening, but you're doing it in a way that acknowledges no one's perfect. Where I see positive practice, and in fact, in Australia, it has been in the media industry, is where entire industries get together and say, we have a problem. It's the same problem for all of us. And we can do some systemic things to make this better. So when I think about media, as it turned out when we did our stats on industries, 
I didn't expect it, but media came out really high in terms of sexual harassment. So media, technology and information was 82% of people in that industry had been sexually harassed in the last five years. I'm not going to say wow because I'm not surprised. Well, I was a bit surprised and the next level was arts and entertainment. So then I started thinking, okay, let's stop thinking about whether there's it just attracts you know, dodgy people. Or it's historical. So I think it is all those things. So when I looked at it, I thought, here's an industry that, again, with the, you know, congratulations to you on an amazing career, but a lot of people in media, entertainment and the arts are in short-term gigs. They get a season of something, they're in the run of some play. So people are mostly temporary, mostly relying on word of mouth for the next job in an industry that's mostly driven by men in an industry where sexual behaviour is part of the job sometimes when you actually have that in the films and the shows Mm. and you combine all those things with men all still in charge, all those things lead to an environment where sexual conduct can happen and people really are not empowered to speak up and people at the top might not be seen it at all. So I actually, I think it's a great example of an industry where there's a whole lot of factors that actually point that way. And I look at that and I've said to lots of other industries, you're all going that way, that temporary work, that insecure employment, that, you know, word of mouth is really important. So I think uh, what has happened originally because of the Weinstein thing is in Australia, a lot of the Screen Guild and a whole lot of unions and employer organisations and media entities got together and they came up with one uniform policy on sexual harassment. Any good? I will say at the time, I didn't say it publicly but privately because I was an employment lawyer for a long time, all the large companies have a policy. So I kind of said it's not for lack of policy that this is happening but... And so I am a bit cynical every time someone has a case, they do a new policy that's written by HR. But in fact, it's not the policy itself. It was the idea that the whole industry agreed to one. So when those people are moving from show to show, from set to set, everyone's opening briefing is about the same policy. It's about the same information. And I have heard in the industry that Not only do people care, but it's not confusing. You're not trying to work out who do I speak to or what are the rules. The rules are the same everywhere. I can tell you there has been a paradigm shift and it hasn't been just in the last two years. You know, media is largely a reflection of the society where it lives. Yes, And we're at the sharp end and yet, you know, we're meant to, journalism is meant to hold people to account. But a lot of people have found their voice through you know, strength, courage and leadership from really brave souls who've stood up. And look, I think people using their voice, I mean, we're here because of that. The system is complicated, but, you know, the tipping point of people being able to speak has been really important. But I 100% agree that I think that when the Weinstein first hit, in Australia in particular, it was viewed as this, you know, if it's here, it's a media problem. The reality is it isn't. If you're a woman in the mining sector, you know, you've got a 70% chance to have been sexually harassed in the last five years. Finance sector, the the legal profession. That's right. It, That's it right. abounds. There was no sector. When we started this, we're like, we'll find the good sector. Like in, in women's gender equality, we always say, where's Scandinavia? You know, they're always doing the good thing. So in sexual harassment, we're like, okay, who's which industry's good? And the reality is the stats are one in three. And just to be clear, that's 26% of men and 39% of women. So men experience it as well. That's a high rate. 
So there's not many people below the average. And so that's just unacceptably high. And I think the country doesn't want that to be the case. It just has been. Would it be fair to say, historically, Australia had quite a misogynistic culture? I guess I'd, I would say Australia right now still is quite attached to gendered roles of men and women at home and work. So if I think about my jobbies right now, if I, um, I grew up in an orchard, my parents are in their 80s, they're sort of that 50s generation, uh, the gendered roles were really defined, you know, he goes to to work, work, she stays home. home. Mm. The reality is that isn't what happened in practice, I think, but they were the rules and they were the rules of the game. I'm that next generation in the middle who sort of in the 70s and 80s, these new laws came in and there was new workplace, you know, it's going to be equality for me. And then there's now this new generation of people who are coming in. Now, my job at this moment right now is to look at our stats right now. And actually, a bit like the sexual harassment, women at work haven't made nearly the progress I think we anticipated when those laws came in in the 80s and 90s. And I think that there's some really good intel now about how embedded the gendered expectations and assumptions are in our systems, how embedded it is in how we all work and do things, that expectation that women will still be the primary care of the children And the parents. And the parents, that's right. And that men actually are not being masculine enough if they're not the primary breadwinner and what are they earning. So I think other countries, even the states, have moved more from those gendered roles, but we seem to be still quite attached to them or at least they're still influencing a whole lot of things. So there's conversations now about men and parental leave. Mm. And the reality is I hear from men over and over again how difficult it is them to take parental leave, even to the point of one of my brothers saying he wanted to, you know, he couldn't get to a meeting here, but he could dial in. But is that a good look? Because he needed to do something with his kids in the morning. And I'm sort of, no, no, you've got to do that. But for men to do that, that's really difficult. I think we're at a tipping point and I think we want to change. There's a lot of policy systems that still say, well, this is the standard and men will do this as a standard and women will do that. And I mean, I work, you know, my arrangement with my husband when I took on this role is it's a national role. I'm going to travel a lot. And he said he works part time and flexibly as a lawyer, but he said, I'm behind you. I will do it. And the reality is I now understand why some of those people work full time. It's just so liberating to not have to keep track of everything. And what are we having for dinner and who needs to be where? It's a great thing. So I can see why some of those male CEOs with full-time wives at home... <laughs> don't want to switch uh, yeah, over. <laughs> don't want to switch. But I think we're at a time where we can actually do both. We've got technology, we've got flexibility for work. Our kids are better with both parents involved. We know that, we see it, and we're ready for it. So I'm excited about that. We worked together a little bit last year in this space, and one thing we found was that the new face of homelessness in Australia is older women predominantly because of the historical superannuation split and the way that worked. But currently, women on average still receive 47% less super than men, and that doesn't appear to be changing. These reports are important because it gives us a status report to give us a place in time that we can measure ourselves on. But I'm hoping, for example, for my daughter, I say to her, if you form a relationship and you choose to have a family 
you need to have the conversation about what happens when we have a family, about how we will income split our super. Why should, not just women, but why should one gender sacrifice their financial future because both of you decide to have a family? Where I'm getting to with all of this is it's a big part of the education process about not just your rights, but a cultural piece where I don't see gender anymore. I see community and people's equality across the board. Yeah, and I think we talked about this. I would love there to be a toolkit for some of those early conversations for men and women Mm. because I know when I was having those relationships, I got married later, so everything was on the table. But when I was younger, which is when all my friends were pairing up, even to the point of changing your name, like I'm still shocked the conversation about changing your name is, you know, young men are disappointed if their girlfriend won't change their name. And if we're not, if we're still, I mean, my answer, I don't mind what people choose, but kind of go, did you talk about him changing his name? And then I feel like I've touched the, you know, I poked the tiger there, which is about the gender roles, who has control. This is, it's not just how it's done. I think it's just been so entrenched. So if I come to your comment, I think that um, my colleague Kay Patterson, who's the Age Discrimination Commissioner, is absolutely mobilised around that older women and homelessness issue and looking for options to help them. But what we can see from that story is that in that time when those new laws came in and women were encouraged into work, they weren't, men weren't encouraged into caring. And so what has happened is over or that time... Or income splitting the super. Or income splitting... Because their financial security main, was right. maintained even though they, as half the couple, said, let's have a family. That's right. So And, and I listen to that s- scenario and I think that is where we need to get. But there's two parts of that scenario. One is that our policy and our systems actually are discriminatory. The superannuation system relies on that you're employed and how much you earn. Men are much more likely to be full-time employed and the gender pay gap says they're more likely to earn more. So embedded in the system is discrimination. And then the second is this idea that men and women need to solve the problem between themselves. But who holds the power in Mm. that scenario? It's the man saying, I will. Or the breadwinner. Or the breadwinner. And that's starting to happen as well. And I think, and I'm not an accountant, but I think there's a taxation discrimination as well built into that scenario which needs to change. And I think that comes back. I, I go right. Australia's been amazing on some things, but when some of these things come up, I love to unpick because we never meant this to be the case. I truly believe that all these, you know, these older women and homelessness, we never thought that would be the case. But when I look back, Australia was quite revolutionary when we, in the 70s, introduced that 12 months unpaid maternity leave. So the US still doesn't have that. Everyone thinks world leading, it's amazing. But when I now unpick why the pay differential and why men have so much trouble leaving the workplace, there was a policy decision right from the start that said, we expect women are the more important ones to be at home and we'll let them be home for 12 months. But what in fact did that do in Australia, which it didn't do in the States because they never got it, is after 12 months, women have now taken on all the homework as opposed to, you know, when they to working couples, everyone shares. They do all the cleaning. They look after all the kids. They're keeping track of everything. And then they go back into work and manage that as well. And then they're the ones somehow that have to find the childcare. It's their wage that's viewed as the one that it's not really worth it because you're not earning that much. They're being flexible. 
So the unintended consequence of what we thought was an amazing benefit is it has entrenched this role, these roles of you earn the money and you stay at home and look after the kids. And so that's, I think, part of the reason why I jump forward to now. Actually, you know, there's kind of this narrative for some women and I'm not, I, people say it's my choice, but some of the times I'm thinking, you know what, there's some levers that have been working. Like, oh, my kind of, you know, silent, if not vocal is, in the long term, the price you will pay is very high. And I have a I have a girlfriend in that category, so I'm 51. And so we're right thereabouts. I don't. I think I'm young, but, you know. You are. The, yeah. Just I, ask exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> but a friend of mine was in a position where the marriage wasn't working out, not a story of family violence or anything, but actually she wasn't in a financial position to be able to leave. So for years she was in this situation. Trapped. That's right. So her get out of jail was she just focused on getting a full-time job and it was so difficult and she was so frustrated. She's a 50-year-old woman who's trying to get a full-time job. And so I looked at that and thought, the domino, I can't say to these new, fresh, you know, young mums, I know that's a beautiful baby, but don't completely, completely let go. That was always my career and I now understand why my career advice was do your thing but just don't completely let go. Keep a hand somewhere in there. Where do we sit internationally in the comparison stakes? Yeah, we that because we've slipped, haven't we? We have slipped. So when they started first measuring in two thousand and eight, I think it was, we were about fifteenth in the world, and we're now down to about thirty ninth, forty sixth. We've kind of been slipping down, and as I said, our issues in Australia are there's there's issues about violence against women. There's issues about women in leadership roles. So we know we talk about we've had one Prime Minister, one female Governor-General, you know, in Victoria we've had one female Premier. So we just can't seem to get past the one. So our representative voice at corporate, the heads of corporate organisations as well as political and even community is low and our economic security is poor. We're really good on education I think we're pretty good on the laws, even though they need some tweaking. We have some great uh, structures, I think, um, in Australia. The fact that my role exists, that's an amazing position. That is part of our international obligations. We have um, Libby Lyons as the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. She's motoring around those corporates, kind of asking more of them in terms of gender equality. We have our watch that's looking at prevention of violence against women. We have the e-safety commissioner, Julian McGrant. Like, there's amazing roles, and it's not just the people. They're all amazing people, but structures the that really say... The drive it. Yeah, we care. We've, you know, Maurice Payne is a minister for women, and we've always... They're people who are there watching out for us, so that's good. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One of the key areas of discussion when it comes to equality is quotas. Yes or no? 
Oh, I'm, I'm supportive of quotas. So I'll give you the corporate answer and then I'll give you why I think this Oh, I want is. your answer. Oh, yeah. So the corporate answer is, um, which is my answer, is I think they are to advance gender equality in any organisation. If you want to advance something, you set yourself a target and you work towards it and you put in place the initiatives you need to reach that target. So that's done on sales. It's done on even in the political world on, you know, geographic. The Outcomes, use, bottom lines. Yeah, the use of a target or a quota, and there's some nuance about technicalities, but the use of setting where you want to go is absolutely normal business practice. It's normal organisational practice. And I think that should be the practice. But the problem is people then say, oh, but you've got to get there on merit, which suggests an assumption that all the systems in place currently are fair and that the reality is all the good people have been men and if you rely on the good systems, you'll only get dodgy women. And what I know in practice is if you have an authentic leader who says we know, um, and this is what we've got great research, we know this organisation will be more productive if we've got better gender balance. It doesn't have to be 50-50, but the research says a board with 12 men will be much less productive than a board with maybe, you know, four women, four men, whatever it might be. More diversity. More diversity. So that's what the targets and quotas position. That's the simple answer. And then where I've seen it work really well is then the smart people then go, oh, well, we still need to perform really well. We need good people in those roles. Let's unpick what are the systemic things that are standing in the way and how do we find people. So if I If I go to a really basic thing, I quite often get asked, you know, we need a woman on our board, like just from senior people, and they'll call me as if I'm running a little recruitment process. (laughs) Um, And inevitably men call me and say, we're really keen, you know, we actually don't have any women and, you know, but it has to, it has to of course be a good, you know, it has to be merit-based and you don't even need to say that to me. But what I've realised is their networks don't reach to women because in this day and age, there's amazing women everywhere. And so what I usually say is, yep, that's good. Okay, tell me what industry and what's the skill set. And I can almost invariably just from a couple of different chief executive women website, give them 10 names and they almost invariably are excited about all 10. Yeah. And so I look at that and I think, okay, so what you need to do is you need to think about doing this differently. And so if I jump over to an example in Iceland, so a few years ago I met the Minister for Employment in Iceland and it was at a UN conference about women and they were asking him, you know, you've had quotas, what do you think? And he said, look, he'd been the head of the employer association. He said before they came in, all the employers were opposed to them. And he said, including him. He'd come in, he said, now all of those people have completely changed their views. And he said the reason why was that we set these quotas so organisations had to change their recruitment system. Now, their recruitment system was you find your buddy who will go on this board. What he said was by going in and doing a a kind of a much more um, structured and professional skills-based process, the men we got improved as well as the women. So he said absolutely cross the board because we've now got a better system. So that's that's my position on quotas. But it is really interesting because I've been really learning a lot about, so there's some new knowledge about behavioural insights. So it's relatively new as a discipline, but this is looking at sort of the unintended consequences of some of the things that happened. 
So what I've begun to notice, and this even through the sexual harassment inquiry, is when you talk about we are trying to advance gender equality and, and women, my observation, I think the research will support this, is a lot of men and many women say, well, that's not really fair. So they actually start focusing to make sure that they're making sure men are getting a good opportunity. So the narrative about how unfair, you know, the situation is for men. So I do work with Defence, the Chief of Defence, amazing. And he sort of comes across these discussions. Now, remember in the army, uh, certainly at the time, women were about 13%. You would think that he was running an army of only women. So some of that. so Of only men. So no, no, of only women. So that's that was the point. Is when he started saying, "I think for us to be the most effective fighting force, we need a better representation of women." What then happened, and I think this is very much a live conversation, is the once you talk about that, all the men start saying, "This isn't fair for us." And each time I keep going, no, no, you've still got, um, if it was thirteen percent, you've still got eighty-seven percent chance. That's a lot better than the women. But so this target quota, I really try to, I prefer not to spend too much time. I can explain it. But then I realise once But it you, alienates one side, whichever yeah. side you're on, it and alienates even, the other. Even, look, I've had lots of women who have said, you know, particularly women who's relying on their husbands getting the next promotion. They're like, I don't like the work you're doing. It's affecting our income because he's not, you He's know, not getting those opportunities because he's a man. But he is. And that's why I kind of go, you know what, they didn't bring in a quota saying 100% is for women. They're just trying to... Balance the books. Yes, that's right. All of this is happening around International Women's Day. And every year at this time, uh, men bristle and the feminists, and I'm proudly a feminist, will rage on about we're not there yet. And the truth is we're not. But I agree with you about the networks. What I'd like to see and what I like to do every International Women's Day is, is acknowledge the areas that need to improve. Also acknowledge we can't do it alone. So what I try to say to women come International Women's Day is let's work out a way to be more collaborative and build strong networks, not at the expense of men, but to work alongside. We can do this together. But traditionally, women haven't had strong networks. Historically, the only network you ever heard about was the YWCA or the Mother's Club. <laughs> CWA. CWA, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, both of those, all of those. Yeah, and yet, you know, I say to women, you've now got things like business chicks and women in focus have a, mm. a strong women in business network. Those things shouldn't be a rah-rah through the gender lens. I think it's got to be a rah-rah about celebrating who we are, how we've arrived, what do we bring to the table And how can we maintain our strength and momentum, not at the expense of anyone, but just to support each other? I absolutely agree with this, and it's quite nuanced. But I think historically, um, I've done some reviews of gender programs and women in business and women in whatever. Historically, they started because women were so in the minority, really just as a sort of an agony club to say this is so hard and you know how do you cope and how do I cope wow I've never heard agony club that sort of (laughs) defined it didn't it wow Um, and that was my start in the 90s it was definitely the women in business was just you know get the senior women to kind of tell you you're not mad it is really hard and it's not fair but here's some tricks on how to work around it Jump forward to now we now understand it's not a task of us learning how to play the game like the men 
the benefit is we we all bring great different things. But it is interesting that those networks haven't really evolved even. So lots of organisations have a network and they just pop them off to the side. It often reverts back to the quota or the target. Yes, we've got a women's club, so that's sorted. I, yes, I want to empower yeah. women to say, well, yeah. don't dismiss this as just a, a little women's club. You know, we are at the table. We demand a voice, demand a place. And we've got to work as hard to build our networks because we're working historically against structures that are confronting. I also think there's, there is a very big movement of men who are supportive. Yes. So there's lots of conversation about sponsorship and men getting involved. So those networks, your strategic networks, have to be at all levels. But then when I come back to, if I think about some of the International Women's Day events... And some of the most interesting things I've done, it's been where women have said, I don't need to hear another inspirational woman. Or I don't need to hear because, yep, that's fantastic. I just wish some of the bosses would give some of us a go and, you know, like I'd get a leg up. But there's there's an event that was held early this year. So there's some places that I think, oh, they're doing it differently and I think that's good. So Tennis Australia, which of course has the advantage of a long time of equality of pay at least and, you know, recognising that women's tennis is different to men's tennis and that's okay. These are both good, they're both profitable, they're both effective. So they have on the women's semi-final day an event that's called the just the Inspirational Series and they've done this for about four or five years now. They just have, the speakers just happen to be women. Actually, it's not dissimilar to, Sandra, what I've seen you do. And instead of getting them in there and saying, how is it for you as a woman in this job? They just get, so this year it was Rebel Wilson talking about her career. And there were definitely all the challenges of gender and, you know, that you get. But amazing. Then Caroline Wozniacki, the amazing tennis player. And so talking about her career and then Leanne Moriarty. So what they were doing with these women, and I've seen this a lot, if we say, this is great, she's the first woman to have done, what have you heard? You've heard she got there because she's a woman. And most of these women say, I didn't get there because I'm a woman. I got there because I'm a, like amazing I'm at, at what I job. do. So this is really nuanced, but I always think when I go to this Tennis Australia thing, it's a great room full of people. It's focusing on amazing women, but it's not focusing on what's it like because you're a woman and it just feels normal. So what you're saying to me is the importance of role models is arguably the game changer for everyone. I think it's not that simple. I'm going to say when I listen to that and I'll tell you why. I think it's multiple things. I think engaging everyone's really important and I think making changes in multiple places at one time is what's important. And the reason I'm hesitating about the importance of role models is there is a saying, you can't be what you can't see. And we wouldn't have made any progress if that really was true. So I think it's relevant. I think it is really helpful, the quantum. And I think your career and a lot of other women who have got a well-established career, I think we've got a moment now where our young people do think they can do it because we're out there doing it. But if you say you can't be what you can't see, well, no one will ever get anywhere because some women have to be the first. Well, you pulled me up perfectly and you're right. I just see the value in role models. Mm. We had Marita Cheng in here a little while ago who's you know, heads up Robo Gals and she's um, from North Queensland but currently straddling her time between Silicon Valley and Australia. And 
She's an Asian-Australian who's super smart and doing amazing things, and she's a little pocket rocket. We know discrimination in the tech industry and IT is enormous, and she rails against that all the time because, you know, she can compete. She's found her voice because she knows it's important that young women aspiring to have a career in tech need to see her in the space. Yeah, and I do. So I'm not saying no. Mm. I actually 100%. There's a lot of women who get more down their careers and and they talk to me and they say, I actually realise I don't want this to be as hard for the next generation. What can I do? And my answer is probably what you're saying. It's often if you can do what you're doing right now just the best you can, then that says everything. I'll work on policy and, you know, some other things because what often people think is I have to do my job and then I have to be president of a women's organisation and do these other things off to the side and that's really hard to do. I get excited about role models and examples all the time. So one of my favourites is a woman called Molly Taylor. So she'd be about 30, she might be a bit older than that now, but she was a rally car champion. She was like the first woman. So rally car driving is pretty filled with men. And when I heard her speak, like I just, it was in New South Wales and she was just at a conference and she stood up and she said, when I speak to groups, I always get asked two questions. What is it like being a woman in a male-dominated sport? And what is it like being the first woman national rally car champion? And she said, I can't answer those like I've always been a woman and I've always been in this sport I don't have any point of comparison but then she said but what I can tell you is what it's like being a rally car driver and that if that speech that she gave wouldn't inspire every woman and most men to want to be a rally car driver just the excitement and so that's your example of the role models which I just think you know just remind us that This is a great idea. Gender equality is actually a great idea. Lots of people who are listening to this may not be the first in their profession, as you say. What tools would you give them in helping their world be more gender equal? Uh, One of the things that I'm interested in is getting everybody to have a bit more gender expertise. So when I say just do your job really well, I'm interested about men and women, how there's a few basic things A lot of what we've talked about, about the stats, you know, there can be this view of things have changed, I've got equal chance, quotas aren't good, all those sorts of things. And I think for women, there are some women who work against themselves and a little bit more gender expertise, which will be doing a bit of reading. Look, we've got a hairdresser listening to us, commuting on the way home from work, and she's wondering, well, that's all great. And, you know, I might be a single mum, I might have a couple of kids. What can I do to make my world more gender equal? Is it just awareness, language? So I would say if she's got children, that immediately, you know, she's a very important person in making the the world more gender equal. I do think using your voice and understanding enough to say, hey, that's not okay, backing and supporting other women sometimes, But actually a lot of women, the best thing they could do, even though it's very hard and I do it every day, is there's a lot of men close to us and their life experience is different. So I do have some conversations with my husband and I do it with a lot of men around me where they come from a completely different place to me. So, you know, this is a really basic thing. Sexual harassment. Okay, she was wearing a low-cut dress and, you know, whatever. I'm like, that 
does it mean she wanted to be, you know, no woman ever thinks, oh, that's a good idea. Like, that's what I was doing it for. But it seems like a lot of men think that's a sign. And so every time I have these conversations, I realise I need to be more curious. Their experience, their upbringing and their perspective of the men is so different to women. So on sexual harassment or Harvey Weinstein, I watch all these things and I think, how does everyone think that all these gorgeous, talented women all want to sleep with the most unattractive man. Like why, why is this sort of commonly accepted? In the power structures, all the men around until a point just accepted his explanation that these women are all having affairs with me and it's nothing more than that and we have to pay them off. It's consensual. And, you know, I think every woman ever says, mm, no, but I've begun to realise that's not the experience of men. They've been sold a story about power and virility and they are going, well, he's in a position of power. These women are trying to sleep to get ahead. And I'm kind of going, no, no, they're just trying to keep a job. So I guess my gist, which will be a bit indirect, but is that for women as well as men, you can have curious conversations if you can influence, if when you come to uh, getting married and they say, you've got to take my name, that might be the moment to say, well, well, why do you think that? Like, how does that work? It's, you know, there's small moments where you can sort of say, actually, no. But some of that, we've all been conditioned in the same way. So for women as well as men, that can be tricky. One consistent issue when it comes to lodging a case is that it's inevitably conducted in business by your HR division, whose primary responsibility is really towards their employer. So you feel like the game's already set up against you. Should there be a different structure for those that want to lodge a sexual harassment case, like a body outside your place of employment, you know, where you feel like you've got a fair umpire? Yes, we heard through the inquiry absolutely that concern about the internal structures having an inherent conflict. I mean, they are, if you bring a complaint forward, you're not happy, you can sue them. That's inevitably a conflict. So we did hear a lot about uh, requests for different options. So that option should still be there. But the other options that people were interested in is what's a direct option that's less formal, less adversarial? Where could I get information externally? And certainly there are places, and the Australian Human Rights Commission is one of those places, where I could learn about my rights. Also, where can I get supports externally? So people within a workplace did very much feel like once you tell your employer the game's up, there's a whole lot of things that are out of your control. And what we know is when someone's experienced sexual harassment or considering taking action... What they really want to know is, where can I get support so I'm okay? And then they want to know, how can I understand what my rights are before it's all got away from me? And so those two things came out really clearly. And we have, in our report, made some proposals about how those options can be available. And already we have seen some organisations like police, Victoria Police, for example, and Defence have created options for people to go to that are external to the organisation. So it gives some of those protections that you can get the help without being in the middle of a big system. We don't just have women listening to this podcast. I'm sure we have plenty of men. Your message to them? Um, My message uh, to men is to engage, to not be scared of this topic, that gender equality isn't a war against men. It absolutely isn't against men's rights. 
gender equality is about the sex as being equal. I'm not in the camp of I've got to convince you how you're going to make more money because women will help you make more money. But I am in the camp of very much you have a real role to play. We're in a bit of narrative where men are a bit scared to speak up. I'm really keen for men to be a bit brave and also for the women around to be a little less punishing when men say something a bit that might not be quite politically correct. I think we can come together. I agree with your attitude. Together, this will be this will be better. Lots of houses, not all, have a man and a woman in a couple with children. So we're, you know, we wouldn't want to say we're sleeping with the enemy because we're not. We're all together. We've got the same interests. So I would just say for men, engage. Don't be scared of this topic. Whereas I think women are inevitably in this topic, whether they chose it or not. A lot of the work is about changing the sisters, systems and the structures. But in terms of education, it's less sort of mandatory directive and more conversations that are two-way that engage people and that help people to learn and not be fearful of the topic of sexual harassment because I think that's part of the reason why it continues. You've just finished a two-year body of work called Respect at Work. Do you like what you do? It's hard going and the subject matter's pretty tough. This job is a complete privilege. I love what I do, even though that might sound a bit strange. And the reason I love what I do is it's it's a completely unique job, but I feel like this country is at a moment where there are lots of good people and lots of will and commitment for it to be even better. And the Human Rights Commission and the Sex Discrimination Commissioner role is at a unique spot, not well resourced. I don't have a team of massive team of people. It's two or three of us, but we're at a point where we can connect with government, we can connect with grassroots, we can connect with corporates and business, and that is the way to make change for the better. That collaboration, it's not going to happen because I say it should, uh, but being able to know that new expertise, understand what's happened, help people move forward and find those opportunities, that, that is a great inspiration and it's a great opportunity for me and I feel so privileged to be in the role. Kate Jenkins, thank you for your work. Respect at work, I know it's been a, a labour of love. I hope it's adopted widely and um, this goes to changing the lives of not just women in Australia but providing a more equal and fair workplace and equality for all and that's what is really important to me and I know it is to you. Thanks for your time and joining us here at Short Black. And thank you for your work too, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.